we took a look at all the different net zero energy systems that are possible and mapped out, well, there's a whole bunch of possibilities here. What we found was that electricity grows no matter what. So you can think of it, it is a safe bet. Now within electricity, lots of different generation technologies, lots of different technologies that can provide flexibility, safe bets and wildcards within all of that non-emitting electricity, but electricity itself is a safe bet solution. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 059, number 59 of the Flux Capacitor. When I launched this podcast, I wanted to share with the listener the types of conversations that were already taking place within the electricity sector about the future of the business of electricity and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. These were the sorts of conversations I was often having on the margins of meetings and conferences with industry leaders, stakeholders, government representatives, regulators, and industry partners. I wanted the listener to hear what we've been discussing over coffee during a taxi ride over dinner or stuck in an airport departure lounge. This podcast was recorded live and in 3D. The background noise you hear is Globe Forum 2022 in Vancouver. On to today's podcast and today's guest. Jason Dion. I'm the Mitigation Research Director for the Canadian Climate Institute. At the Globe Forum, much of the discussion has been about the transition to the energy system of the future. Jason joined me in the break area outside the conference's plenary session to chat about the Canadian Climate Institute, its role in fostering practical solutions and researching pathways to meet climate targets. We discussed the centrality of electricity to the energy transition, the challenges of intergovernmental coordination, carbon tax and revenue recycling, and the potential future for wild cards like direct air capture. We close our conversation with his recommendation for an addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Jason, recorded in late March 2022. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Uh, great to have an opportunity to have a chat. Thanks for having me. It's terrific to actually meet in person. Here we are at Globe to put things in context for the listener. Uh, it is the day after the Prime Minister came out with the emissions uh, reduction plan. Uh, and so it has been certainly a, you know, a topic of a great day of a, a conversation and discussion here. But Canadian Climate Institute previously the Canadian so, Institute of Climate Choices. That's right. So maybe start off with the, for the listener, what is the Canadian Climate Institute? Yeah, so we've been around a little over two years now and we are a large not-for-profit think tank focused on Canada's climate change challenge. So we're organized around three different dimensions of dealing with climate change. Mitigation, which is the team I lead, adaptation and clean growth. But at the same time, not thinking of these in a siloed way. We're very much about addressing climate change in its entirety. Okay. Uh, so we have some expert panels that guide our work, a large staff of about 30 spread across all, uh, all across the country. Uh, and yeah, very much focused on policy advice to governments of all stripes at all levels, uh, as well as to the private sector and other stakeholders as well. Okay. And so where did, uh, where did the institute come from? Is it uh, funded by government grants? Is it 
a charity? Yeah, so we, we have charitable status. We are funded by the federal government. So mm -hmm. looking to broaden that base of funding a bit as well. But so while we are federally funded, we are fully independent in terms of our research direction and the topics that we take on. We have a board that has no representation from government. So mm -hmm. we are independent, fully independent, but federally funded organization. Okay, because the, the, the previous podcast was with a transition accelerator. Right. And, uh, and Bruce Lurie. So it's interesting to, 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 to kind of get a sense of the different people in this space. So it is a research organization, a think tank. Um, how would you describe it? Yeah, all, all of the above. I mean, we're, we're really focused on practical solutions to dealing with climate change and, and, you know, connected to a lot of the other research organizations and think tanks as well, including Transition Accelerator. So we have some folks okay. from there that sit on our board, sit on our expert panel. Okay. Uh, so yeah, but we are very much about rigorous evidence-based research, uh, developing kind of new facts, new capacities, new answers right. uh, to difficult policy questions. Okay, okay. And then the group that you're, uh, you're in mitigation, what does that sort of entail? Really, it's about reducing emissions uh, mm -hmm. and, and reducing the effects of climate change. So, you know, my work so far has focused on pathways to Canada reaching sure. its net zero target. Yep. We have a project coming on aligning electricity systems with net zero. Uh, next project might be something focused on building heat and the future of the gas network. And we've rolled out a number of smaller reports along the way, but, but usually what we're doing is taking a big, deep, year-long look at a given topic to really come with some depth and credibility on difficult and relevant policy questions. Okay. Well, here's a, here's a question that I ask uh, folks that, uh, that come on the podcast, and that is about your journey. Uh, when you were a, a young lad on the playground, <laughs> is this what you dreamed of, of, uh, of doing? I mean, I don't know about young lad, but but certainly, uh, you know, I, so I was interested in economics, went went for an undergrad in economics. Okay. And, you know, my interest in that was all around questions of human prosperity and well-being. Okay. And pretty quickly, it became clear to me how much ecological constraints were going to be what was was binding on that in, mm -hmm. in, in the future. And so really gravitated toward environmental and ecological economics. And at a grad school, I got a job at the International Institute for Sustainable Development, okay. which was interesting and got, okay. got into a whole bunch of different topics related to sustainability and climate change. Uh, after that, Canada's Ecofiscal Commission, so mm -hmm. lots of work on carbon pricing and mm -hmm. kind of putting that economics background to use. Uh, and now at the Canadian Climate Institute, where we're kind of taking a broader focus, lots of interdisciplinary work, lots of different research tools being brought to bear on these tough policy questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what are some of the biggest surprises for you so far? It's been a, a couple of years now and there's, there's some significant research uh, that's out there. We've been talking about it. Uh, in fact, today there was a session that, that, that you and your group had put together that talked a lot about uh, some upcoming research uh, from the Institute. Uh, what are, are sort of the biggest surprises for you over the last couple of years in terms of learnings from the research? Yeah, I mean, at the very highest level, and it's almost, you know, a, a level up from the actual research we do, you know, when the pandemic hit, my expectation was that climate change would get put on the back burner yet yeah. again, you yeah. know, and, and it's something, you know, other other problems come up and that one doesn't necessarily become stay top of mind. And if anything, it's been the opposite. And that has surprised me mm -hmm. how much the commitment across the board and not just, you know, environmental NGOs, but in government, in industry, 
the commitment is real, the momentum is real, and I'm more encouraged than ever that, you know, while I don't believe we're going to do everything we should do fast enough when it comes to climate change, that we are going to mount a serious response and, and avoid some of the most severe impacts that are possible. So that's been a pleasant surprise, definitely, over yeah. the last couple of years. Yeah, that everybody stayed on, stayed on file and stayed on point. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, in, in terms of the specific research, I mean, it's not a surprise, of course, to learn how central electricity systems and electricity as an energy source <laughs> is in the net zero transition. But it has been a sort of interesting to kind of peel back the layers of the onion here and to get into, well, you know, given that systems are provincially managed, given that there are national climate targets, how do we kind of square that circle? And that's where our work has gotten really deep. We're going to have a report called Electric Federalism that is about the role that, that both orders of government can, can and should play in addressing this challenge. So the kind of pleasant surprise there has been that there is a pathway to, to doing this in Canada. I think that's kind of held up as a challenge and a barrier. And, and certainly it comes with some challenges, a sort of decentralized governance approach we're mm -hmm. going to have to take. There's also strengths in it that, you know, different provinces can be piloting different approaches and, and sort of working in a bottom-up fashion. If, if the commitment is there in different orders of government, then the fact that everybody's rowing in this direction, I think, can, can lead to, to better outcomes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You recently uh, published, uh, published an article or co-authored uh, uh, an article. I'm trying to remember what publication it appeared in. Policy options. Policy options. Uh, could you give the, the the listener just a thumbnail sketch of, of what that was what that article was about? Sure. So that that article was intended to provide a bit of a sneak peek into some of the research we have coming in this report that'll launch next month. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason we wanted to roll that out early is we recognize this policy discussion around electricity in Canada's net zero transition was very live, and we mm -hmm. wanted to sort of make sure we were timely there. Uh, this target that the federal government has of net zero electricity by 2035 and how they're going to deliver on that through policy is a big and important question. Right. And so this piece we wrote was focused on that. And what we laid out there was an approach that took the proposed clean electricity standard, the mm -hmm. details around which have, have yet to be pinned down, mm -hmm. and pitched a model for this that could work in tandem really well with carbon pricing. Okay. So, I mean, without getting into all the specifics, there's a very specific approach that's been taken by the federal government to carbon pricing in the electricity sector. And if we're going to meet this net zero car target by 2035, that policy is going to have to be strengthened. And mm -hmm. so we laid out some ways of strengthening that signal in ways that still protect ratepayers and preserve incentives to electrify and you know, avoiding raising the costs of power, but that also allow for a role in the clean electricity standard that would do things that carbon pricing might not be able to do as well. Mm -hmm. So for example, delivering on that quantity target. You know, it's not a guarantee that carbon pricing is going to drive emissions down to net zero by 2035. Mm -hmm. A performance standard regulation can do that, especially with the kinds of flexibility measures we've talked about, negative emissions offsets. And it can also help rule out the construction of new gas-fired capacity on the, on the road to 2035 that you might get from carbon pricing alone, where there's some lingering doubt and questions around how durable that carbon price might be. So it's what they can do together, you know, mm -hmm. as complements to one another that we mapped out in that article. So what are the, the sorts of things um, you, you uh, identified that would help specifically with respect to uh, minimizing the impact on, on customers? Because that's something yeah. that we keep coming back to. Yeah, and, and so what we talked about there, so you know, I'll, I'll try not to get too detailed here, but 
the current approach the federal I'll government. Put a, by the, I'll put a link to the article. <laughs> okay, there you on go. The, on the uh, on the page for the uh, okay, perfect for the podcast. But yeah. So the, the specific approach the federal government has taken here is output-based pricing yep. for the electricity sector, and that that's different than the consumer tax on on gasoline on on uh, natural gas. And basically, what it does is it doesn't expose the end user to the full carbon cost. It provides incentives to get cleaner instead of smaller. You know, there are reasons why they adopted that approach. What we have proposed is a way that can address those concerns, those concerns around price shocks for consumers mm -hmm. that can still maintain stronger incentives from carbon pricing. And, and in a nutshell, that's to apply the full carbon tax mm -hmm. to electricity across the country, but to take all the revenues that are collected, keep them in province, and return them directly to ratepayers. Hmm. What that does is then that the cost of complying with the carbon tax policy, the ratepayers don't get exposed to that. So investments that get made to reduce emissions, certainly those would still be passed on to consumers, but the carbon tax itself would be paid by the utility, but would be recovered by the ratepayer. And that would create a strong incentive for utilities to reduce emissions, but not one that lands heavily on the consumer of electricity, which is not what we want. I'm trying to figure out how that actually works. So it is paid by the utility that's recovered through ratepayers. So it's paid by the utility, and then ratepayers, as one of the last lines on their bill, would be returned the value of that carbon tax per kilowatt hour of their consumption. So what you would end up getting is that the value of the car, effectively for the consumer, there was no carbon tax. Mm -hmm. The utility though, faces the full incentives of the carbon price. <laughs> it's, it's maybe, maybe, maybe I, I uh, it's because I'm, I'm not an economist, I'm just, so, so who's, who's, who's paying the, who's getting the price signal? So in a, in a privatized sector, or uh, in, in jurisdictions where there's a large role for the private sector, the tax would be applied and it would be, per unit of generation mm -hmm. and per ton. So a natural gas fired facility would have to pay the full value of the carbon tax and that would effectively raise the cost, the price of that right. kind of power. Yep. So in dispatch markets, it would now have to compete with renewable sources of power that weren't paying that carbon tax. And that would help nudge ah, dispatch towards lower sources of emissions. Okay. But all the money that is collected in providing that signal, in, in increasing that price difference between renewable and emitting sources, would be sent straight to the ratepayer. Okay. Because otherwise, what you would get if you just applied the carbon tax and then took the revenues and do what you do elsewhere with mm -hmm. carbon taxes, mm -hmm. and whether it's rebates through the tax system, electricity bills would be higher. Mm -hmm. So we might, even if we rebated it through the tax system, like the federal government has done with other parts of the carbon tax, Electricity bills would be higher, and that would, and the problem with that is that it would land especially heavy on grids and provinces with higher sources of emissions. Right. And so you'd see, you know, large price increases in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, in Nova Scotia, in New Brunswick, and hardly any at all in mm -hmm. provinces with hydro. Mm -hmm. And you don't actually want the price of power to be rising at a time where you're trying to encourage people to electrify. You want those incentives to switch to electricity. So what this does, this revenue recycling option, is offers a way of strengthening the carbon price incentive that mm -hmm. utilities get, while at the same time ensuring that consumers aren't being saddled with that carbon tax, that they're getting that, that, that recycling back to them on, the, gotcha. on their bills. Okay, all right. Now, now some of the work that uh, your, your group has been doing through the Institute, you've, you've been doing in partnership with, with others. Mm -hmm. um, you've been uh, co 
co-sponsoring and co-authoring uh, a, a variety of different reports. How's that model working out? I, th I find it a really interesting one. That, that every time I get a note from from you or somebody at the institute that there's a there's another report that's come out that that's been done jointly with you know another organization. Yeah, so it's it's been an interesting model. It's, it's different than what my team did in the past with the net zero work, where we're sort of trying to roll out some interim products, you know, mm -hmm. recognizing, well, you know, we don't want to just kind of leave people waiting on this project for a year. It, it does a couple things. One, it sort of can help build an audience for the work that we're going to have ultimately. Mm -hmm. It can help drive conversations. It can kind of stimulate our own thinking. We're hearing feedback on these things. It's helping us in our project work. Uh, so it's also a way, honestly, of building some anticipation for our report. So right. part of that has been to partner with other interesting groups like Indigenous Clean Energy, mm -hmm. like Canada Grid, mm -hmm. to talk about and work on shared you know, areas of interest and challenges. Yep. And what we're trying to do with this is roll out new thinking from recognized experts that can kind of help accelerate and drive the conversation uh, and ultimately un inform better work on our part. So we'll be kind of culminating next month in the launch of our final reports. But we hope that these interim products, these case studies, scoping papers, mm -hmm. opinion pieces mm -hmm. we've rolled out along the way will, will have their own value and staying power as well. And they certainly uh, sparked a lot of conversation uh, you know, here at, at the Globe Forum, quite a few of the of those papers have been topics of conversation in the sessions here. Excellent, great. I mean, that's that's what we're hoping for, and it's it's been really helpful to be able to, you know, there's a number of recognized academics in this area, mm -hmm. key organizations, so kind of linking arms with them has really helped us in our own work and to kind of build an audience for our ultimate project report. Yeah, yeah. So let me, let me just go back to one of the other, probably the report that at least people in my association focused on a, a lot, and I think it was published a little over a year ago, uh, that looked at all of the various pathways. Right. Uh, and um, I mean, that's probably one of the more foundational reports, at least, you know, for, for, for our sector that was looking at. You looked at 60 different potential pathways to a net zero 2050 world. Exactly, right. Yeah. So, so this work came out a little over a year ago called Canada, it was called Canada's Net Zero Future. Yep. And this is, I mean, we've been talking about electricity so far. This was bigger than electricity. Yep. This is yep. economy-wide economy pathways yeah. to net zero. Yep. And what we tried to do in that work is, is recognize, you know, right, and bake it right into the design. Well, there are legitimate sources of uncertainty mm -hmm. in how this could play out. There's uncertainty around how different technologies might bear out, what their relative costs would be relative to other possible solutions. There's also uncertainties associated with global forces that are beyond our control. Like how quickly is the rest of the world moving on climate change? Mm -hmm. uh, what is the global price of oil? And then it really critical factors like, well, what is the, the potential for negative emissions? Because if we think of you know, sequestration, if we think yep. of net zero, it's, just not, it's not just about getting emissions down, zero, it's also it's offsetting. Also net, yeah. So what, how big of a role would that play? What would yep. the implications be? So what we did is, and it, we didn't set out to do this many, but we did end up with 62 different scenarios mm -hmm. of get Canada getting to net zero by 2050. And rather than kind of looking individually at a lot of them. But first to begin with, that was, mm -hmm. for, for me, when I first saw the report, that was the first um, sort of eureka moment, that, that you had so many pathways mm. that, that led to a, a net zero future. And that, that was, I think there was a lot of conversation around that as well, that there was this multiplicity of potential pathways. Totally, and that there are, there are a lot of different possibilities here. And I think what's, what's important to underscore about that is not that there are actually 62 viable ways to get there. Mm. It's that there are 62 potential ways to get there. Right. So some of these might not prove to be viable, but what we were able to conclude is that there is enough 
options. There is enough potential there that we can find a path to net zero and we can probably find more than one mm -hmm. potentially. Mm -hmm. So what, what we did in that work that I think was helpful is rather than kind of zooming in and looking individually at each scenario and each possibility, we zoomed out and looked across all of them to ask, well, okay, given that this could play out all sorts of ways, what's always the same? What never changes regardless of how Canada's net zero transition plays out? Mm -hmm. And the solutions that were involved there, we, we referred to as safe bets. Mm -hmm. These are things that make sense no matter what, that mm -hmm. we can implement and deploy and pursue with confidence. We also noted that there are some things that may or may not play a really significant role in Canada's net zero future. These we called wild cards. Yep. And wild cards does not mean it's all a matter of chance. It means it's not clear yet how big of a role they'll play. And what we tried to underscore in that work is too often the proponents of safe bets or wildcards are kind of talking past each other. Mm -hmm. Some will say, well, we need to focus on the solutions we have in hand today. We don't need all these whiz-bang future technologies. They're a distraction. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we don't want to let those possibilities distract us from the work we have to do on safe bets. But nor should we let the, the viability of safe bets distract us from the wildcards. We need to be pursuing these next generation technologies for the cost-effective deep GHG reductions they can maybe unlock. So, it is about both, but they're different conversations. Yeah. Safe bets are all about deployment and getting them out there. Wild cards, it's about developing them to make sure mm -hmm. that we're ready when we need them. And we need to be actively working on both starting now. Mm -hmm. It would suggest though, using, using the term safe bets and wild cards, suggests that this is a, uh, a game of chance that we're <laughs> involved in, but, but it isn't. I think we, we talked a little bit about this earlier today. Yeah, and I think uncertainty would be the word that I would use. That yeah. there are parts of this that we know with confidence. There are parts we don't know yeah. with, with total confidence. And yeah, I think if, if there's a limitation to this analogy we've used, it's that, it's that impression that it's all chance. And in fact, that's not the case at all. Yeah. We have lots of agency in these. Yeah. And you know, you think about it in, you know, to really kind of double down on the gambling metaphor, if you're holding a strong hand, mm. You know, safe bets are good. Wild cards are good too. You know, they, they can mm -hmm. have a lot of power in certain card games that you might play. So really, you want both. And we, we feel Canada has a strong hand across all of these. I and let's play say, it. The, yeah. the key thing is that we play it. If you sit yeah. on your cards too long and you're slow on this transition, not only do you risk a more cost a more costly transition, you risk missing the boat on clean growth opportunities and, and developing export in these. Yeah. The, the the quality of the hand that Canada holds, I think, is is an interesting one as well, right? And, 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 and I, I know that's something that that we've we've talked about and people have talked about here. The relative uh, starting point mm -hmm. for Canada to decarbonize, as compared to some of our other trading partners, is, totally is 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 really quite quite striking, it, particularly in the, on the electricity side. Mm -hmm. Where uh, what did, what did we hear from from somebody today that the the uh, uh, in the United States, less than forty percent of the electricity sector is from non-emitting sources. And here it's right. over eight. Yep. And the starting yeah. point is a very different. Yeah, and, and so there's a huge leg up there in Canada's electricity sector because of nuclear, but in large part because of that that really large base of hydroelectricity, hydro. yep. and that presents a pretty significant advantage. You know, we we've, we've got a head start here. We, you know, a lot of a lot of other countries. At the same time, they're trying to get people into electric vehicles. They're trying to clean the grid mm. so that they can, you know, so that, that switch doesn't actually right. kind of remain steady in terms of emissions or even increase. We don't have that problem here. We, we do have work to do, and it is different region by region, and some regions face a tougher challenge than others. But the, there is a really strong starting point. And, and I would even zoom out to paint a bigger picture here of Canada's relative strengths, that our resources, our infrastructure, our know-how, these all represent strengths in a, can, in a net zero transition for Canada. 
I think often people will think of our oil and gas sector as a something that makes our transition harder. We have such a large source of emissions coming from there. Mm getting to net zero that kind of makes it more difficult and, and certainly that sector creates challenges at the same time that sector can the know-how that exists in it can present opportunities so if you think of geothermal energy if mm -hmm. you think of uh, all sorts of different applications that engineering know-how mm -hmm. uh, that ccus is another technology yep. these are areas that we can excel in and that we have a head start in because of that same know-how that exists in that sector what about direct air capture? I know, I know, it was it was in uh, in the in the wild cards out there. Um, when you were looking at the at the different uh, potential potential pathways, how important would or or could direct air capture uh, be in uh, in our in our twenty fifty and beyond world? Yeah, it's it's really the ultimate wild card. Like this, yeah. if it works out in a large way that is is sufficiently cost effective, right. it could make the whole transition much much easier, and really i mean we this is a technology we want to and, and just to sort of define it just to sort of not take that for granted yeah. uh, among the listeners so direct air capture is a technology an, an emerging technology there's a, a group called carbon engineering that has a pilot project going in bc that basically sucks carbon dioxide right out of the air yeah. and the idea would be that you can pair that with ccus carbon capture and storage technology to pump that captured co2 underground mm -hmm. and what you get is what's called net negative emissions yep. so you can get sequestered GHGs, and that can offset continued sources of emissions that are going on elsewhere in the economy. So that can be in a completely different physical location. Right. So that possibility of technological negative emissions is a compelling one, right? Because we, we do have this other potential in nature-based negative emissions, sequestering carbon mm -hmm. in land. Mm -hmm. Really important potential there. Canada, with the huge landmass, it has a really important category of solutions. The challenge there is there is the risk of impermanence that those gains can be lost to things like wildfire and drought, all of which are right. going to get worse so with climate change. So when you talk change. about sequestering in land, we're talking about in vegetation. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, that yeah. can get lost. Yeah. It can yep. get re-released. Whereas if you're talking about burying it in deep saline aquifers with, right. with technological solutions, the, the risk is much lower, much, much, much lower or, of or, it getting Or released. manufacturing. Exactly. The, the utilization. So actually sequestering it in products would be another one. So yeah. this, this technology is extremely promising and, and exciting. And I think it's one of these examples of one that's held up as a possibility that some might have a knee-jerk reaction to of, oh, you know, that's, that's just gonna delay action on the other fronts we need to do. And yeah, we need to avoid that. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore the potential mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. because even if we're not going to use that technology, say, to kind of, you know, at the extreme, maintain something like business as usual. I mean, mm -hmm. a, a level of deployment you know, that would allow us to not make a lot of the other changes we're talking about. Our, our research found that's not the case. There are mm -hmm. so many things we still do because it's cheaper than direct air capture. Really, we want to be investing in this technology for allowing us to offset the continued source of emissions that are really hard to mitigate and really expensive too. Yep. So think industrial processes like cement manufacturing, there's just not a lot of good alternatives. Yep. But even beyond that- Air you know, transportation. We, exactly. So we, we can invest in this technology for applications like that, but looking beyond, you know, a lot of all the major global studies of climate modeling will say eventually we must not only get to net zero, but net, net negative, negative global emissions. Because we've got 150 years of atmospheric exactly. damage. Exactly, exactly. So we have to pull out yeah. the emissions that we've released yeah. historically in large part. And technologies like direct air capture are, could be hugely important in yeah. that. And Canada has the geology to actually bury an awful lot of CO2. So this could be a really important contribution Canada is making 
later this century into net negative emissions. So mm -hmm. there are lots of reasons we want to go for it on this technology. And, you know, I won't get a lot deeper than that. But one final thing to note here is there's an incentive gap around it. We have a carbon tax that, that provides an incentive to reduce emissions. You have to pay the carbon tax yep. on emissions released. There's no corollary for the net negative, right? There's yeah. no reward yeah. Yeah. for sequestering emissions. So something like a negative carbon tax that maybe even would be higher than the level of the current tax, mm -hmm. recognizing that this stuff is expensive and we, we need to kind of pilot this stuff and get it off the ground, I think is a really strong case for something like that. So definitely kind of whiz-bang wildcard technology, but we need to be thinking about the long-term and technologies like that if we're getting serious about net zero and beyond that, net negative. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan. I, I, I see a future where we're going to have to move into that net negative world to, to reverse the damage that's right. been done by 150 years of, of industrialization. And, uh, and you know, I, 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 I'm, it's gonna be very interesting to see where, where this one evolves. And I, I agree with you, uh, I think uh, Canada has uh, the potential to be a real leader in this space uh, for a variety of reasons, but as you say, not least of which, based upon our geography. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So uh, all across BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, they've got the geology to hold this stuff underground. And when we were doing this work, I, I asked some of our consulting technical experts, like, you know, but like, how do we think about the scale limits with something like this? And their, their, view, their response was, but geologically, there aren't any. Like if we pulled all of these hydrocarbons out of the ground, there's a lot of room, lot of room. to yeah. pump CO2 back yeah, in. That's not the in. constraint. Yeah. The constraint is that at the extreme, you're talking about, you know, CCUS infrastructure, DAC facilities that, you know, at a certain point, the level of deployment becomes one of the largest industrial projects we've ever conceived. So yeah. It, yeah. I, I think that's where it starts to bind in terms of the scale potential of this technology. But in terms of the, the kind of geological constraints, they're simply, they're, they're, where they exist, they're not going to bind for an awfully long time. Yeah, and then there's, there's, there's the opportunity for utilization. Exactly. Yeah. Which, then, which yeah. then, yeah, gets around that one. Wow, okay. Listen, uh, you know, you've, you've, been, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I did have two questions for you. One, you did a lot of, uh, a lot of work around 2050 and those pathways. You've got work that's coming out now that is specific to electricity. Right. Uh, how optimistic are you that we are going to be able to reach um, those targets? I know you've looked at the 2050 target, but uh, we're talking a lot about the 2035 electricity target. Right. Uh, and of course, that yesterday we saw the, uh, the uh, ERP come out uh, that dealt with the 2030 target. What's, what's, your, what's your sense? Uh, as, you know, I, I asked that panel sure. that, that we were in on a, a little while ago uh, to, to, for people to give me a, on a scale of one to 10, but on a scale of one to 10, to, uh, you know, 10 being optimistic and, and, uh, and zero being pessimistic, how optimistic are you that, that we'll, we'll, one, get the policy right, and then two, actually be able to deliver around 2030? Yeah, so uh, let me start by connecting the dots between that, that previous work and this new project, yeah. which has really been that, you know, we, we took a look at all the different net zero energy systems that are possible and mapped out, well, there's a whole bunch of possibilities here when mm -hmm. it comes to how Canada gets to net zero. What we found was that electricity grows no matter what. So mm -hmm. you can think of it, it is a safe bet. Now, within electricity, lots of different generation technologies, lots of different technologies that can provide flexibility, safe bets and wildcards within all of that non-emitting electricity, but electricity itself is a safe bet solution. So we wanted to come back with another detailed, deep look into, well, what it, would it mean to realize that potential? So we have this technical focused report that is about 
different pathways and technologies and the roles they could play, again, with that safe bets wildcards frame. But we also have our, our policy report that is focused on, well, how can we deliver on that potential? Mm -hmm. How can we achieve mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think we've got our work cut out for us on this front. And, you know, if, if the message on wildcards is it's not a matter of chance we have agency, the, me the message on safe bets is that doesn't mean it's all inevitable, it's all inevitable right? Not right. at all. Yes. Like there are lots of things we're going to have to do yes. to realize this potential. We can drive that forward with confidence because mm -hmm. there's safe bets, but there is work to do. Mm -hmm. And so how confident am I that are optimistic that, that we're going to get there? You know, I think with the right policy tools in place and the right signals. And so what, what Blake and I mapped out in that policy options piece if your target is net zero by 2035, by, by our analysis and our estimation, that's the smart way to get there. That you have carbon pricing to drive the incentives, you have the clean electricity standard to provide that clarity on the, what the quantity target is in 2035. Mm. But you also have this possibility where there is the potential for some amount of continued emissions mm -hmm. after 2035 mm -hmm. if it can be offset with verified negative emissions. Now, that measure of flexibility is really important because it is entirely possible that the carbon price in 2035, it, if it does continue to rise beyond that planned 2030 trajectory of 170 a ton, yeah. it might not be high enough to drive all emissions out of the system. Mm. And you don't necessarily want to just sort of keep, keep kind of ratcheting up the carbon yeah. price. What you want is to make sure that any continued emissions after that point would be offset. And but the incentives from carbon pricing would be strong enough that you would use that remaining fossil fuel capacity sparingly mm -hmm. when other sources weren't generating, only kind of when you had to. Yes. And those kind of those those small moments, those those small periods throughout the year, the ability to pay for negative emissions from the electricity sector would be as high, if not higher, than some of those other industrial sectors. So if you think of that there might be a market for negative emissions in the future, yeah. this small amount of continued emissions that we might have after 2035, the, the ability to pay for those negative emissions relative to other sectors would be strong. Yeah. So this kind of market mechanism, this measure of flexibility, can help us hit that net zero target, mm -hmm. emphasis on net, mm -hmm. but in ways that don't have to pose you know, significant challenges and concerns around reliability and the possibility of price spike. So yeah. this is the way to kind of drive us forward towards that. And you know, my, my co-author on that policy options piece, Blake Schaefer, is, has done, does a lot of work on the electricity sector his whole career. He was a trader for a long time, and now mm -hmm. he's an, an economist in academia. And you know, his, his observation here is that you know, we heard a lot in the time of the discussion of coal phase-outs about the viability of mm -hmm. that and the, mm -hmm. the effects that it would have on reliability. And in fact, the whole thing is proceeding much faster than expected. Right. Now, I don't want to make a simple you know, e equation to, oh, and that means that it'll be equally easy for gas. But what it does suggest is that when mines are focused and when we have the right policy signals in place, yep. things move and things change. And there's a lot of ingenuity and know-how in this sector. There's a lot of budding technologies options that, you know, how optimistic am I? I'm very optimistic it's achievable. I'm cautiously optimistic we can implement the right policies to mm. achieve it. If anything, where I start to get a little less sure is on all of the other policy changes that we're going to have to do. You know, can we build systems fast enough, the yep. permitting processes? Yep. This is where the rubber meets the road. Yep. And so, I mean, it's sort of like a, a, a graded answer in terms of how optimistic I am. Achievable, yes. Policy, I think so. All the other things, lots of work to do yeah, there. Yeah. All right. Well, Jason, one of the things I ask everybody that comes on the podcast is for a book recommendation. So we've got a little thing that we uh, we uh, call the, the Flux Capacitor Book Club, uh, and uh, we 
add a, a book to the to the reading list every time uh, I record a podcast. Sure. So for you, what book uh, do you want to add to the reading list for our listeners? Yeah, so somebody's probably said this one by now, but uh, Mark Jackard is on our expert panel. Uh, he's an academic uh, at UBC. Sure. Has a book uh, called The Citizen's Guide to Climate Action. And you know, oddly enough, it's actually surprising that that has not yet been recommended. No, okay, well, good. I'm, I'm glad I'm the first. You know, it's written with a general audience in mind, and, and really it describes how if, if you're serious about climate change, these kind of voluntary bottom-up things that we've been encouraged to do for a long time, you know, I don't, I don't want to minimize their importance, but that is not going to be enough mm-hmm. in, in the aggregate. What we really need is policy change. And he's got a pretty clear prescription for what that involves, and it involves electing and supporting what he calls climate sincere politicians. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is, is the message that, you know, when I talk to this, this when I talk about climate change to friends and family, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Mark often. So I think it's right. a great book and a great read. He's got lots of kind of YouTube talks on the topic if you yep. wanted a shorter version, but that, that'd be my recommendation. Okay, so Mark Jacquard's book, the title is? It's, I think it's Citizen's Guide to Climate Action. I hope Fantastic. I haven't gotten that a little wrong, we'll, but we'll more or less. A, we'll, put a, we'll put a link to it. Uh, and, and as I say, it's surprising that, that uh, we've gotten to, I don't know, episode 58 or 60 or whatever it is. Uh, without uh, without Mark on our on our <laughs> reading list, so he's he's on the reading list now. Good. Jason, thanks very much. Really appreciate the opportunity to to, to chat further uh, uh, on the podcast. We've been talking nonstop the last couple of days here at the conference, but it's good good for for uh, for the listener to listen in on some of the things that we've been talking about here at the at the uh, the Globe Forum. Yeah, my pleasure, and I'll I'll encourage your listeners to check out our our website, Canadian Climate Institute, in early May for the launch of this electricity work and these these two reports. Outstanding. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks for joining this episode of The Flux Capacitor. The website of this podcast can be found at thefluxcapacitor.ca, including links to organizations and reports we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, check out the Book Club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on the Flux Capacitor. Please tune in for future episodes of the podcast, and let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.